if you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1. Verse 16. Romans 1, 16. Let me read this uh, text to you guys. We, next week we'll be starting a new series in John again. We're going back through John um, in the I Am statements of Jesus. We kind of flew by John for all, uh, I mean, every probably expository preacher uh, would say, you taught John in like eight months, that's insane. That's really fast. And it was, it was fast. So we're going to go back through it this summer, just this summer, and do the I Am statements because those are just beautiful. We're going to start that next week. But before we get to that... Um, I just wanted to dovetail off like Life with God series, just one last teaching in that, in that little series and hear from Romans chapter uh, 1, verse uh, 16 and 17. Let me read it and I'll pray. Romans 1, uh, 16, Paul writing to the church in Rome. Um, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. It's God's word. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you are the power to change us. In the gospel is the power to transform and to change the world, not just our sometimes small individual lives, but the whole world, Lord. And there's no other name under heaven given to us by which we can be saved other than the name of Jesus. And so, Lord, I I ask, Lord, that um, it would be very, very, very clear that you're the only thing, you're the only thing that saves. The only one that saves, the only one that reconciles the world is Jesus. Glorify your name. Pray that you would use me, um, submit all of my capacities to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. I always uh, wanted to be like the Apostle Paul. Um, I really love most of his writings, the ones I can understand. Um, Romans gets to some hairy places that I don't really understand as well. And I wish I had Paul's resolve, his tenacity. Um, I love how he says in verse 15, the verse right before verse 16, Paul says this. He says, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. He's writing to Rome. He hasn't visited Rome yet. Um, and he, want, he can't wait to get there to preach the gospel. And he says, I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I am eager to preach it, for I'm not ashamed of it. I want that to be me. It's always been hard, though. That's that, that whole I'm eager has been a hard thing for me, always. Um, on July 4th, uh, eight years ago, in 2007, I was, um, I was reading Isaiah 9 in Santa Barbara, um, and God whispered uh, to my soul the words San Francisco um, as I was reading Isaiah 9. And uh, we were praying, my wife and I, Ashley, were praying where we, would might, we might move to plant a church community. And when I heard San Francisco that day on July 4th, I remember writing it in pencil at the bottom of my Bible with a question mark. And I wrote it in pencil just in case I wanted to erase it later. Um, I just, I wrote it right down at the bottom of my Bible. And when we started moving toward beginning to plant or starting to, to, to start this church community, rather San Francisco, most people thought we were crazy to start a church in San Francisco. 
um, devout Christians that we knew would write us or talk to us in person and say, um, you're crazy. What are you thinking? A family who were not Christians at all would come up to us and go, okay, um, you're crazy. We're not in the church business, but it seems like San Francisco is not the right market for your business. Just saying. Um, just put that out there. Eager was not the first word that came to mind when I thought if I was ever to write a letter to the city of San Francisco about me preaching the gospel in San Francisco, eager was not the word I might use. Paul says I'm not ashamed. Ashamed, well, that, I can see how that might be more fitting a word, actually, in this city. And I get it. The gospel has done some major damage in this city. Uh, more accurately, people in the name of the gospel have done major damage in this city. From po protests over the years against the gay community to Jim Jones, the pastor of a church right down the street he, from this church on Gary uh, Boulevard, who turned into a cult leader who led many to their deaths. Um, and that's just this city over the last generation, not to mention what people have done in the name of the gospel throughout the storied history of the church, and not to mention how many people in this very room have been hurt in the name of gospel ministry by pastors and leaders and churches and parents. Ashamed might be the most fitting word at times. I am, we might be ashamed of the gospel. I can see how when we want to tell our coworkers or our friends about the gospel of Jesus, shame might be the very thing that sticks in our throats. We're shamed. And I get it. I wish I was like the Apostle Paul. I like to call the Apostle Paul Tenacious P. Um, he's, that's him. He, I, I'm, I'm not like him. I, 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 but right now I want to lean on his words because they're scripture. These, his words are scripture. I don't want to lean on his words. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. That's why Paul was not ashamed of it. That's why he was eager to proclaim the gospel. And though many, many, many people have done diabolical things in the name of this gospel, things I wish I could look you in the eye and apologize for, things like hate and exclusion, things like changing the scriptures to fit how they want to see things, the fact remains that the gospel is the power of God. And though today in our city of San Francisco it might seem that the gospel of Jesus is the most archaic and out-of-date message in our very advanced and hyper-smart society, the gospel is still the power of God. Jesus is still the only hope for this world. And salvation can only come through Jesus' gospel. Nothing else can save Nothing else can restore or make right or set right or redeem or ransom and forgive. Nothing else but Jesus' gospel. The gospel doesn't bring power, nor does the gospel merely have power. Paul says that the gospel is power. The gospel is power. It is the power of God. One scholar writes, when Paul uses the word gospel, he means the salvation unleashing story of Jesus that brings to completion the story of Israel and the promises of God in the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament. When Paul says gospel, he means the salvation unleashing story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and how that completes the story, fulfills the story and the promises of God of Israel. That gospel, Paul says, is power. And why was Paul so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? He's like, I cannot wait to preach the gospel in Rome. If he was writing an email, it would be in caps locks. I cannot wait to get there to, to preach this gospel to you. Why? Because the gospel is for everyone. 
The gospel is for everyone. Paul says that it is for the Jews first and then also for the Gentiles. In Paul's world, that means everyone. The world was divided in Paul's world between Jew and everyone else. And he says it's first for the Jews because it came through Christ who was Jewish. It came through the Jews. The promises were to Israel. And then it's for everyone because that's the Abrahamic promise in, in Genesis chapter 12. That through Abraham and his seed and his family, that all of the nation, all of the world would be blessed. It's for everyone. Paul says that it's for the Jews first and it's for the Gentiles thereafter. It's for all of us. When we started making plans to move to San Francisco and start reality, people would ask us who we were trying to reach. And I would say everyone. And they said, well, let me be more specific. Um, what's your demographic? And I'm like, people. <laughs> and like some dogs because it's San Francisco, but mainly people. <laughs> and they're like, yes, but what kind of people? And I'm like, well, the breathing kind of people. The, the people, like everyone. I, I, don't, I don't really know. We're, we're going to try and preach the gospel to everyone. Because the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for rich and poor, male, female, black, white, prude, whore, vegan, glutton, gay, straight, young, old. It's for everyone. And every identity label society tries to give you, or the, the, your identity label that you try and desire to give yourself, it's for everyone. But the gospel of Jesus is salvation. Or, said differently, the gospel of Jesus is for salvation. Remember, Paul says the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. See, everything I mentioned, these polarized combinations, have tended to blame the world's problems on the other. The problem with what is with white America, they say. Oh, no, the problem is with black America. No, the problem is with rich. No, the problem is with poor. No, the problem is with fundamental straight community. No, the problem is with liberal gay community. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. The gospel is the power that brings salvation from old humanity, those old systems, into a new humanity. Paul uses the framework in Romans that you, in Adam we all die, but in Christ there's like a new humanity. And Adam was the first humanity, and that one horribly screwed everything up. Humanity hor horribly screwed everything up and still does. But then there's this new humanity that has broken in the middle of the old humanity. That humanity is in Christ. A new human. New way to be human. New life. The gospel has the power to change everything. The gospel of Jesus brings you into a new story, into a new family, into a new identity. A true new humanity. The old-timey church has called this conversion. Are you converted? I think we should reintroduce that language into our vocabulary. I like this language. Conversion. See, when Paul talks about salvation and the gospel of Jesus being the power of God to change, he has in mind his own experience with Jesus. He has in mind his own encounter with Jesus. His own encounter with Christ shaped Paul's life and Paul's theology. Paul, who was Saul, his name before he became a follower of Jesus was Saul. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was zealous for God. He truly did love God. And he really, really, really was zealous for God. In his zeal for God, he persecuted this new little Jewish movement called the Jesus movement. The way, they called it. And he hated it because it said he, the Jews, these, this little Jewish movement said that Jesus was Messiah. And that he's come to make everything new again. And he's the promise of everything that Israel held hoped and held to be true and he hated that 
they believed in a resurrection, that they killed Jesus, but he rose from the dead and he appeared to many and then he ascended to heaven and he heard that and he hated it. And so he went after to stop this movement. He went after to kill it. He actually, uh, in his hands, committed murder. When we're introduced to Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says that he was breathing out murderous threats. And he was on his way to arrest and persecute Christians for believing in this Messiah. And then when he was on his way to persecute some Christians, he, he had an encounter with the resurrect, resurrected Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Paul would come to understand this encounter with Jesus as grace as God's unmerited favor. He didn't deserve this encounter, but he got it. Jesus showed up to him and said, Paul, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And notice Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my church or why are you persecuting my friends? He's like, me. It's my body. These are my people. It's me you're, you're hurting. This was a defining moment for Paul's life. His life was reformulated by the power of Jesus. The power of the gospel changed Paul at that moment. He was blinded and then someone came up to him and prayed over him and the scales fell from his eyes and he saw everything new. He was blind but then he saw for real. And he met the encounter of Jesus and his life changed. He abandoned his former life, even his former approach to life and came into the life of Jesus. Last week I shared the story with you about hiding drugs in my socks being the first time I prayed. One of the first times I prayed. Um, about five months later, Jesus would cash in that prayer. Five months later, right after getting expelled um, from school for dealing drugs, um, I had my Saul to Paul experience. Uh, the resurrected Jesus spoke to me or appeared to me. I, I don't really know how to explain that experience. I just know I was in my bedroom and someone had just bought me a Bible and I never had a Bible before and I just opened it right to the middle of it and I just started reading and I don't even know, I was reading the book of Job, and I don't even know how you get saved out of the book of Job. You don't. That's, that's why it's a miracle. And I'm reading Job. I'm like, and, and Jesus, like, spoke to me and said, follow me. Follow me. And it wasn't as dramatic as Saul's. I wasn't blinded or anything like that, but that was mine. The gospel was the power of God to change me, to save me, to bring in me into the salvation unleashing story of Jesus at that moment. I was converted like Paul was converted. And here's what conversion means. Conversion is a change of convictions, a change of conduct, and a change of community. This is what happened to Paul. This is what happened to me. He changed his convictions of who Jesus was, what his life was to be lived for, what mattered most to him. He reordered his loves, what got him angry, what got hit, what brought him joy. All changed when he turned to Christ. All of it changed. I think that living in San Francisco, you as a Christian, you live with a bit of frustration. Like this tension, this like... This dissonant noise like in your soul, like things aren't right, like this, like this weird thing where you, there's certain things you absolutely love about people and the city and there's things that, that don't make any sense and they don't go together. There's things that make you frustrated. If you are a Christian in San Francisco and you're not frustrated by certain things, injustice, and the things that bring you joy are not the same as what brings Christ joy. This is what conversion means. This is what it meant to Paul. 
he not only changed his convictions about what life was for, he, he actually goes on to say something that I've, I've remembered my entire life. He said in Philippians, he said, I want to lay hold of the reason why Christ laid hold of me. He's like, uh, Jesus laid hold of me for a reason. He blinded me for a reason. And my whole life is going to be spent trying to lay hold of why he laid hold of me. And that is, that's a change of convictions. His convictions changed. He's like, I want to pursue the reason why Christ pursued me. There is a purpose and a mission that Christ brought me into, a larger story, and I want my life to be about that story. His convictions changed. His conduct changed. How he lived. He no longer drew a sword to kill Christians. He now suffered in the name of Christ. He would give his body to suffering. He says that even in my suffering, I make up what's lacking in Christ's suffering, which I don't even understand what that means, but that's gnarly. He changed the way he lived. The way he loved, the way he forgave, and it changed his community. His family was now the church, the very people he was trying to kill. This is what happened to Paul. And if you've ever read any of Paul's writings, this is what he expects happens to those who are converted by the power of the gospel. If you are converted by the power of the gospel, you're changed. In 1 Corinthians 6, he goes on to list all these things that the, that the people in Corinth did before they came to Christ. Then he says, such were some of you. Some of you were this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You were this and now you're this. You've been converted. Now there's a long road of sanctification, but God's power is real to change, to transform. Paul, whenever Paul writes about the transformative power of the gospel, he knows it works because it worked on him. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, he means to lean on the same power that was able to change him. And every single time I get up and preach and I know that the God, God's power can save, it's the same power that changed me. To bring me into the story of Jesus, to bring Paul into the story of Jesus, to fill his life with grace, and the grace of God and the peace of God and the story of God and what God is doing in this world. The gospel is the power of God to transform, to change us, and to change things, to change our standing before God, to change our place in God's family, our individual hearts, our present and our future. The gospel is power. And how is this gospel so powerful? How is this thing so powerful? Verse 17, Paul says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The gospel is power because in the story of Jesus, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. In the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, it reveals to us who God is. And as it reveals to us who God is, that is power. So what is the righteousness of God that's revealed in Jesus? The righteousness of God is an attribute of God, an activity of God, and an attribution of God. They're all A's, so they have to be true. All, they all go together. Righteousness of God is an attribute, an activity, an attribution. And the gospel of Jesus reveals these things to us. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection reveals these things to us. Jesus' life reveals the righteousness of God as an attribute. What this means is that it reveals, Christ reveals the character and the glory of God. In the um, story of Moses, uh, Moses asked to see God's glory. And he kind of, he didn't really show him his glory. But what he gave him instead was his name. And he told Moses his name. And he said this in Exodus 34. As he passed in the front of Moses proclaiming, and this is what he said to Moses, 
proclaiming his name. This is like the first time we get God saying who his name is himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You know who I am, Moses? I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to reveal to you who I am. I am a God who is gracious and compassionate, and I'm slow to anger, and I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, and I maintain love to thousands and thousands, and I forgive, but I will not let the guilty go unpunished. I am a just God as well. I am full of mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. And this is God's glory. He is a God of mercy and he is a God of justice. And these two things, mercy and justice, if you read through the Bible, the Old Testament from cover, like from start to finish, you can just read it. It's, pr- it's a pretty scary thing to do. And you get in the middle of it and you're like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Um, I see mercy. Okay, okay, I see mercy. And I see, gosh, God has justice and he's angry. He's angered all kinds of people. And these two things, mercy and justice, mercy and justice, hang together. They actually hang like a narrative tension throughout all of the Jewish Bible. And the question is, how will God be both merciful and just? And then John writes, and we just finished this book. John says that Jesus has revealed the character of God or has literally unveiled the character of God. John says in John 1:14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among, among us. This word, this logos of God, God who was the word, became flesh. God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And it says, we, John says, we have seen his glory. The glory of God. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Mercy and justice. This is the glory of God revealed in Jesus. Jesus reveals how God is both merciful and just, how he's both gracious and truthful, full of grace and mercy. And Christ reveals that as he goes after to set things right that have held us in captivity, as he goes to be merciful. But ultimately these two things kiss in God's divine activity. The righteousness of God is an activity. Grace and truth, mercy and justice kiss on the cross. And not just for individual salvation. The cross of Christ, God was reconciling the whole world to himself. I know we tend to sing songs about our individual salvation. But what's really going on is that what God is doing is reconciling the entire world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What God is doing in Christ on the cross is reconciling the entire world to himself. Not just our individual souls, but the entire world. That's trees and animals and people groups and nations. He's redeeming the entire world that has been marred by our rebellion. Christ is showing both the grace and the truth, the mercy and the justice, how those two things meet on the cross. Jesus is what God is doing in this world. It's activity. God is putting the world right again. His righteousness is the same as that word justice that we talked about last week. God is doing justice. Jesus is God doing righteousness and mercy. But it's also a divine attribution. This means that as we are, we come into Christ, we are given righteousness. 
both status and character. This is the transforming power of the Spirit of God. See, the gospel embraces everyone. There is not a single soul it would exclude. But all who embrace the gospel must come here to die. The old has gone, the new has come. Remember, it's for everyone who believes. The gospel is for all who believe. And when we believe, we're given righteousness. When we believe in Christ and his story and his death and his resurrection and his life, when we believe in Jesus, we are brought into the rightness of God. We're given righteousness. Though our hands are filthy with sin and our hearts are filthy and our lives are not aligned up to the things of God, he brings us in and declares us right. And he does this by faith, everyone who believes. Now, there's this word, belief and faith and trust. And I think belief and faith can kind of become weak words to us. I like to use the word trust. Because it, it means the settled conviction in God and his faithfulness. Like, I trust God. Um, what Paul does here, he, he uses a quote actually from the Old Testament. At the very end of verse 17, he says, the righteous will live by faith. He's pulling that out of this really uh, obscure book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. It's a minor prophet. And um, Habakkuk was a prophet during a time when God told Habakkuk a secret almost. He's like, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you something that I'm not going to tell anyone else. It's going to blow your mind when I tell you the secret. And the secret is I'm going to use a very wicked nation to um, discipline you guys, Israel. And to purify you as well. And when Habakkuk heard this, he said, God, are you not just? Are you kidding me? How are you going to allow a wicked nation to take over? How are you going to allow a wicked nation to discipline us? How are you going to use this? Aren't you a just God? And then God says to Habakkuk, listen, don't be proud. The righteous shall live by faith. What he's saying, Habakkuk, is you have to trust me. Things are going to get really, really, really dark. Things are going to get really bad for you and my people. But I will bring you through this. And your rightness before me is completely dependent on your faith to cling to my faithfulness. Do you trust in my faithfulness? Do you trust in my ability to redeem the world? Do you trust in my ability to fulfill all the promises that I've promised? Do you trust in my faithfulness? The righteous shall live by faith. And this is what Paul pulls in here. What Paul is saying is that those of us who cling to the gospel cling to it by faith. Cling to it by faith and trust in Christ who is faithful to all his promises. That is faithful to his word and how he's going to redeem the world. And how he is going to save and how he's going to bring everything right again. How he's going to reconcile relationships and people and our bodies. Everything. Everything. To trust in him. To completely place our trust, even when things seem in our own lives very grim. To trust in the promises, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful to his promises. And that we, we would trust. The righteous shall live by faith and the faithfulness of God. See, in every culture, this gospel can be seen as shameful. This gospel that Paul proclaimed that the church still proclaims today can be seen as shameful. 
It can be seen as shameful because this gospel says it's not your decency or your innate goodness that makes you right. That's what this gospel says. It's kind of an affront to how good you are or how good you think you are. What the gospel says is that your righteousness is not a right. It's a gift. Your righteous standing before God is not a right. It is a gift. And you can't earn it. It's undeserved. You can't work your way toward it. You're not even born into it. It's a gift. And that offends us sometimes. You're telling me that I'm not good enough, that I don't have an innate goodness or decency to earn this? And the answer is no. Not a single one of us are. It's a gift from God. It's his desire to bring us in, but it's shameful in that sense because it's a gift. It's shameful because this gospel says that only Jesus can save. That's kind of shameful. That's kind of shameful in our city to say, no, 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 only Jesus can save. Well, you mean only Jesus and all. No, no, only Jesus. Not your technology, not your superior wisdom. And because this world and our hearts are so misaligned, it took nothing less than the death and the self-sacrifice of God to ransom us. That's kind of offensive as well. You know how bad it is? It took God to die for you. That's offensive. That's almost shameful. It can be shameful because the gospel of Jesus is, demands your whole life and, your, and complete commitment. That's kind of, that's shameful as well. You're, you, no, 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 you're, you're saying that, that the gospel demands like part of my life. No, the gospel actually demands your entire life. All of it. Well, nothing is that important. The gospel says that this, this is important. This is the only thing that is that important. And not, the gospel demands your entire life, not just your Sundays or your money or your sexuality or your kids. Everything. The gospel demands it all. And Paul says that I'm not ashamed of this gospel, even though it might be shameful to say. Even though when you stand up and you proclaim the gospel, you're like, you're, that's, so, that's so archaic and demeaning. We would still say, I would still say, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to save everyone who believes. It's the only power that saves. There is no other power that saves. Only Jesus.